0: See you and I, together, forever,
1: in love. Welcome back, everyone. For a day, I'm actually joined by a very special guest, who you know is Lucy from the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. I don't know if I could really give an introduction justice, so I'll hand over the mic so she can to introduce herself further.
0: Hi, I'm Kimmy Robertson, and there's a big rectangle with a lot of letters on it. Right in the middle.
1: To start off for your first one, is that I could tell that from what you're specifically your Miss Twin Peaks scene near the end of season two, that dancing was a big influential part of your life. Was that some that came before acting or after acting, or was it even at the same time?
0: Oh, it was before acting, and then um, I started, okay, so ballet was my love from a little girl, but it became an obsession when I was in uh, the beginning of eighth grade. My sister took me to see Romeo and Juliet starring Margot Fontaine and Rudolf Nureyev, and um, it changed my life. I became obsessed with Rudolf Nureyev. And um, up until that point in the world, up until him, men were more like statues on stage. They didn't actually have a lot of technique. And he did. And it just was, it was sort of, I don't know. I was obsessed. And um I had to take algebra over again because I actually got a D plus, which was mortifying. And I, they said, yeah, you don't have to take it over again. I said, I, I can't have a D plus in my record in, for the whole rest of my life, especially for something as simple as algebra. And so I took algebra again because I, I was reading the Rudolf of autobiography inside my algebra book anyway um sorry for taking so long but i i became a dancer you know I, uh, my first professional gig was when i was 15 and i was in a company called long beach civic youth ballet and then i went i had to go to college that was the law in our family um, so i picked a university that had a ballet ma- major and th- at that time there was only three in the United States. So I picked the one that was in San Diego. And then when I came back, I I was dancing. And I, I was really into uh, music. My sister had been a pipe organist and a choir director since she was 12 and I was 10. So we were always doing music stuff, you know, um, singing and Playing, she would play the pipe organ and I would pull the stops and after school we'd go play the organ. She'd practice every day and then after that we'd go to ballet and then we'd come home and do homework and that's what we did. And on the weekends we would dance all day and Sundays, we would go to church and then after church we would troll around looking for open churches that had great organs and so she'd play the organ and I t- tool around you know exploring these ancient churches with all their tunnels and stuff underneath and then um, she started doing stuff with musicians like rock and roll musicians I met someone from Devo, when I went to New York to see the Diaglia Festival, starring Rudolf Nuria, the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And after that was over, I went down to, the, to 14th Street to see Devo. I had not been able to get tickets when they were in LA, and I couldn't get tickets there in New York. <laughs> Excuse me. So I just walked under the 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 police tape, it was a big crowd out there with police holding everybody back. And I I went underneath their arms and went, hi. And they said, hello. And I walked into the theater and watched them do their sound check. And they invited me to stay. I think they couldn't quite figure out what my deal was. Like, was I a groupie? If If she's a groupie, she's not dressed right. But I I had on red satin, you know, pants that were tight, sort of, you know, not tight, but not bell-bottoms, and this was in 78, and a purple jacket and a button that said Rebel City Rebels, that was a band from, also from Akron, Ohio, where Devo was from, and they let me stay. And then I became friends and I started dating one of them. And then we went on tour. And um, it was a very long tour. And we went to Europe and stuff. And when I got back, I was in this company, brand new in this company. And um, eventually, uh, what happened was Devo did two music videos Whip It and Girl You Want. And they asked me to help. I worked for Neil Young and they needed somebody to cast Girl You Want. They needed a lot of girls and they needed them to have long hair so they could have ponytails. I said, well, I've got about a thousand of those (laughs) because most dancers had long hair. It was just the thing you you did back then. These are the olden days, remember? And... um, so I helped with that, and I helped with Whippet. They had a barrel, I brought a barrel from the company I was in, a split rail fence, a bunch of bales of hay, a whip, um, and various other cowboy stuff, things for Whippet. And the John Thompson was the producer, and he said to me afterwards, okay, I, I owe you a favor, Kimmy, and said, yeah, okay. Okay, whatever that meant. And so then my company decides to go uh, to Israel for a tour. And I said, I'm not going, I'm sorry, but I'm not getting back on a plane for a really long time. So they said, okay, you have to work in the office. And I, I got to the office to go to work and I was the receptionist. <laughs> and, um, I didn't know what I was doing. I kept hanging up on people. I didn't know how to work the giant phone and this office had all these agents in it, and this one agent kept laughing, and she made me go to this audition, and the thing about the audition was, Colin, that um, (laughs) she had all these pictures of me and resumes stuck in manila envelopes, and she said, okay, um, let's sit down and talk for a second, and she said, do you know anybody in this town in this business? I said, no. She said, are you related to anyone in this business? I said, probably I'm related to Fred Flintstone, but I don't think that'll help. And she said, well, uh, does anybody owe you a favor in this town? And I went, oh, actually, yes. There's this guy named John Thompson who works at Canon Films. And she picked up the very top Manila envelope, and it said already on there, John Thompson, CEO Cannon Canon Films. And she mailed it to him, and, and I was called in to this audition. And when I got there, he met me at the door, and he said, this is your favor. Now we're even. And I said, oh, that's right. Okay. what do you mean? He goes, this is your favor. You got here because I brought you here. You're gonna meet the director and the rest is up to you. So I did, I met the director, we talked for like an hour. And at the end he said, okay, um, you're hired. And I said, oh boy, for what? And he said, I'm doing a movie. Um, anyway, that movie ended up being The Last American Virgin. And since I didn't ever audition for him, we just talked, um, my first time ever acting was when I did the first scene that I did, which was at a party and the, the first assistant director came up and said, okay, when the director calls action, you run out, hit your mark, and say your lines. I said, okay. And he went away and I said to myself, I wonder what a mark is. And um So I went out and hit the mark that was on the floor, which was kind of obvious. And that was it. That was it. Because uh, I had a feeling then that I had never had in ballet. It was a kind of deep satisfaction, like a creativity that I had been looking for in ballet and in dance. And I hadn't found it. So... Acting was it, and that was in 1981, and I did a bunch of stuff the first couple of years of 81, and then I didn't do much, and I didn't know what to do, and I was working at Dick Clark Productions, and someone handed me a Goethe quote on commitment, and I read that, and I went, okay, that's it, I'm... I'm, I'm an actor. And and a few minutes after that, someone came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, excuse me, I hear you're an actor. We're holding auditions downstairs. Would you mind coming down and audition? So I ended up getting that part. But I told the guy, you know, I have a friend who'd be really right for this part. So she got the part. And from then on, I kept having to miss work because I kept working. And I just worked and worked from then. That was in 88. So from 88 on, I worked.
1: And then to rewind a little bit, we were talking a lot about your career in ballet and also dancing and also with uh, Devo. And uh, again, you're footing into the last American Virgin. I guess we could also talk about you know a lot of the films and shows that really just moved you when you were younger like were there any uh particular actors actresses shows or cartoons that really inspired you on the side of ballet
0: well i as i mentioned before i was related to fred flintstone and i mean the cartoon i i don't even know the name of the actor that did the voice but as a kid I saw the pilot I watched the pilot be aired of the Flintstones and I just thought it was the most amazing thing ever because I had been watching uh like the Joey Bishop show and uh there was something else like the Tonight Show in the 50s so um it's it 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 seemed like one of those shows but For me, like for kids, uh, uh, the Jetsons didn't quite, I saw the pilot of that too, but it didn't quite move me like that. And of course, Mary Poppins, I've said this a million times, that's my favorite movie of all time. I wasn't allowed really to watch television or uh, go to movies, but I was allowed to go to that movie Um, and there was something about it it seemed like a cartoon like a live action cartoon colin like wasn't very three-dimensional it was almost a two-dimensional kind of thing i've never been able to find the words to describe what i mean but that visual thing whatever it is was something otherworldly And also then all the stuff it talked about was um, information that I needed to know, like basically how to be positive and how to be happy and how to live in the moment. And other than that, I only was moved by things like the Dick Van Dyke show and, you know, goofy stuff like that. A very, very limited palette. What's interesting is, my food was also like that—very limited palette. My mother made like six things, and that was it. We didn't have, uh, we didn't have a lot of like. We weren't foodies. We just mm-hmm. ate because we had to eat, and <laughs> I'm still like that. And all the research I've been doing says that that's a, actually a healthy way to live. So now I don't have to feel guilty about it like I did for most of my life. I would go to my friends' houses though and eat there. I couldn't. I couldn't eat their food. If I did, I'd get like physically sick. Okay. One time I went and had. I didn't get sick, but mentally, I, I did. There was this chicken soup, and she had bones, in it and I was like, "Is this skeleton soup?" I named it Skeleton Soup. The soup tasted really good. She was an amazing cook, my friend's mom. Yeah, and of course it was great that she invited me to eat, but I had never seen skeletons in a soup before.
1: And actually, we, we were talking about Disney beforehand. And uh, one thing that I actually uh, I didn't even know until uh, I was doing research for questions for this episode is that you were in like a few very prominent staples uh, for Disney in the late 80s and early 90s. Like, uh, you know, we'll start off with uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids because this is a movie that I remember like this was a, the movie that like was like, a big thing for kids for the next twenty years at least. So, uh, how did it feel to be able to work for like you know a company that made like one of your, if not actually your all-time favorite movie?
0: Um, well, that was amazing. I, that was I was dating a guy named Kelly Asbury at the time. He he passed away a couple years ago, but um he worked at Disney in the animation department, and he had a lot of friends who worked there as well in the animation. And um, a couple were doing uh, this new movie called The Little Mermaid. And and they said, would you mind coming in and doing a voice? And I was like, sure. Um, so I did, I went to the record plant and did um, Alana was my voice. And I had one line. Or maybe two but ended up being one line like where's my hairbrush or can i borrow they have something one thing like that and i mean for me the fact that it was animation because there was no animation um uh, what do you call it features there was none anymore and um that was like the beginning of this whole thing that was brewing in the hearts and souls of kelly asbury and all his friends who wanted them to bring animation back like bring it not just back like they eventually did with beauty and the beast and the lion king and all that but they wanted it to come back to the lot because they had moved it over by Imagine- imagineering where they made up the rides and stuff so i was like in there somehow like wandering around in the world. I ended up being in there in the beginning of that (laughs) coming back. I mean, I I it's probably not a big deal to many people, but boy, that was a really big deal to me. And then plus after the movie became a success, there was all the cartoons and the (laughs) ice capades and so I worked a lot just on little mermaid after that you know books on tape all of that that's one of the things when you work back then when you worked on one of their animated features you also did the saturday morning cartoons and all that other stuff and that's how you get to buy a new car wait did that answer your question
1: oh yeah and actually i guess there's more to build off of because uh, did you have any idea that this movie would be as big as it was? Because it was the movie that kickstarted the Disney Renaissance era. This was like a huge deal. Like, not only was it of in 1989, it's still a huge deal to this day.
0: Yes. I, I mean, I was honored because it was Disney and it was the animation. But, um, no, I had no idea that it was going to... Everyone was wishing it would come back, you know, animation. Everyone wanted what... And eventually did happen to happen but no one thought there was any way that any of that could ever happen nobody it was just a, i remember i mean remember i'm just tagging along i'm a girlfriend and these guys have been doing this their whole life studying this stuff going to cal arts i mean this was their lives this was their passion and there i am again, wandering along with them <laughs> hands in my pockets going, gee, this is cool. Oh, and uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. That, I don't even know how I got that audition, but I went in and auditioned for them at least 10 times because that was in 87 that I was doing all these auditions for them. They liked me apparently, but I they kept saying, how old are you? And I was like, I'm 31, or whatever I was. And they were like, no, you look 12. <laughs> Can you look any older? So I kept coming in and they like, no, you need to look older. Can you do something else? So they said, okay, this is the last. We can't do any more auditions. We really want to hire you, but you don't look old enough to play these women. Like the, Matt Frewer's wife, I think, think might have been what they were thinking of I mean I wasn't right for that at all but the woman who did play it was perfect and um they said come in looking as ugly as you can I said okay so I did I went I wore zero makeup I wore uh you know erase that you put on circles I wore that as lipstick so my lips were white I parted my hair down the middle and brought it down over my ears into a low bun in the back, like a librarian, you know, uh, although I've never seen a librarian look like that, but you know, a cartoon librarian and I wore glasses and they were like, okay, still, still not right. They hired me. So, um, they shot it in Mexico at this, I don't remember the name of the studio. I'm sorry. I should know that, but I stopped remembering the name of the studio somewhere in the 90s. So I get there, I'm There, I go to the, to the lot, I'm in the makeup trailer. Uh, she put my makeup on and did my hair and put a bow. And then uh, the director came in and was talking to everybody And I picked up her dog named Sushi, and I was playing with Sushi. And he said, hi, Kimmy, how are you this morning? And I turned this chair, spun around. So I spun around. I said, I'm good, and this is Sushi. Say, good morning, Sushi. And I did this with her paw, and her paw just sort of flapped. And he went, that's it. That's what we're going to have you do. Because he still didn't know what I was going to do at that point. Until that happened, they didn't know what part I was going to play or what I was going to say. Oh, wait, they did know I, what I was going to play Gloria. They did know that, but Gloria had no lines. So we sort of made them up right there in the makeup room. And then when we did it, um, Mark Taylor and Matt Frewer also had no lines. They were just going to greet each other. And I had been blathering on and on about my aunt and uncle's place up at Bass Lake and how there's so many fish there and they actually jump up and the raccoons are there. Um, I mean, I blathered about this stuff to everyone all the time. I went mean, to David Lynch and he ended up putting the whole raccoon stuff in there and, um, yeah, anyway, he put it in, he filmed it several times. And then eventually it was in The Missing Pieces. And I don't actually remember if I ever talked about raccoons on the series. But we did film it at least three times in different ways. And um, so back then, I to down went the kids, so they ended up saying, hey, I talked to Chuck or Charlie up at the lake. And that was my dad chuck and um they said all this stuff about the fish jumping and the wreck <laughs> that was it so very very technical process making a movie
1: <laughs> and i feel like even just those two because that's a not only is that a huge year for you know disney films just with those two and, and not only is it a huge year for you as well but then uh, you move on to 1991 with beauty and the beast which actually this is actually the very first movie i ever watched when i was younger so this is a movie i have a real strong attachment to but i just want to ask of what what was like to be uh, the feather duster uh how did it feel when this movie was not only nominated for the best animated feature but best picture the first animated movie to be in that category i i just have to hear your take on all this
0: well that was something like agent called and said can you make it over to disney this afternoon and um uh, there's a little part they want you to do. I said okay. I get there and Kirk Weiss, who I haven't seen for 30 years, and now he lives around the corner from me, and I just saw him at um, the Planet of the Apes screening. Uh, sorry, but to know that my cat is trying to walk over. No, Button, you can't come over here. You have to stay there. Anyway, Kurt came up to me and handed me the script and he said, here's your lines. Um, uh, and he walked away and he said, oh, you, you can do a French accent, can't you, Kimmy? And I said, uh, Disney French or real French? And he said, Disney French. I said, yes, I can do that. And he then he walked away and he came back again and he said, oh, we're doing a making of. So there's a woman that might come and, put makeup on you or adjust your makeup or something. I don't go places without makeup. I know people do voiceovers in their pajamas and stuff. Not me, <laughs> I don't do that. Um. Uh, so the woman who, was, who came up to me and was putting powder on me was French. So I asked her how to say a couple of the words. She really helped me a lot. And then all of a sudden, it's at this old theater on Hollywood Boulevard, and they've redone it, you know, restored it, which, by the way, they hadn't, uh, you know, they hadn't been doing that. That was brand new, but someone decided instead of tearing it down, let's fix it up because it's so beautiful. Button. She wants to be on TV. Is this is oh, okay. Button but then you have to go back to bed. Okay. um, So I go to the screening and it's like this huge fancy thing and Jeffrey Katzenberg comes running up to me and picks me up and spins me around and says, we're bringing animation back to the lot. You did it. You did it. We're bringing it back to the lot. And I was like, this is, that's the dream. All my friends, Rob Minkoff, Kelly Asbury, Kirk Wise, uh, Gary Tuesday. this was their dream, Kevin Lima. This was their dream. And I'm the one that gets picked up and swung around. <laughs> you did it. You're bringing it back. <laughs> I have nothing to do with it. I think mean, that's gracious. And then it wins. It gets nominated that all I can say is that entire time for all of that, I was like this. The whole for like two years, I was just fucking around yeah. like that. Uh, yeah, and then we also did the Beauty and the Beast cartoons and all of that other stuff. And there's a, I don't remember what it's called, but uh, Fifi the Feather Duster and yeah. Lumiere no danny no. um have a anniversary of their first date and there's a i think it's half an hour and um whatever that's called it's really cute why did i bring that up oh they were going to do that they only did this one they did mine and somebody a, a star on top of the christmas tree and um they were very successful But somebody up at the top decided that they didn't like them, so they didn't continue that. But that was a cool idea. And, yeah, that was quite an honor, really quite an honor. And I have to say, besides Twin Peaks, Beauty and the Beast is my favorite thing because, A, it's voiceover, B, it's Disney – I don't know. Just amazing. Well, how lucky can you get?
1: Honestly, like I said, uh, being in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Little Mermaid, and Beauty and the Beast—those were like the best of the best at uh at the at the Renaissance era. So that's that that is a truly remarkable that you uh, made a mark on all three of them.
0: And you know, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was the first of a long line—not very long, but a line of uh. Of movies that I did that were, that I had small parts in, that had really long names. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. My Mom's a Werewolf. My Stepmother is an Alien. Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. And there's one more, but I don't remember. I think there was five of them. (laughs) Movies with really long sentences for names.
1: (laughs) And actually, because we were talking about uh, Dave Lynch and Twin Peaks for a little bit. Of course, this was uh, something else that put you on the map. How did the pilot come your way and how did the audition? Oh, not audition because I know Dave Lynch doesn't traditionally audition. uh, But how did uh, Twin Peaks come to your life uh, at the start?
0: How did they know that I was alive and brought me in? That was a story I just found out a few years ago from Joanna Ray, casting director. She had been talking to Joe Dante, darn it. I should have, I should have dug out the pictures because I know right where they are even. I did a commercial with my friend, Brian Peck. Uh, We were always doing stuff for a (laughs) hundred dollars. It seemed like, like being this couple or that couple and they needed a couple of aliens and we had on padding. So we were very, I was very matronly and a thing on my head, like a a whole mask with antenna and um, we couldn't breathe. So we could only breathe when the camera was cut and they'd stick a hose up the mask and we could breathe. And that was directed by, I believe it was Joe Dante. And He was talking to Joanna Ray and she said he said something like, keep your eye out for a a girl named Kimmy Robertson. She's funny and she's kind of cute in a weird way or something like that. Like she's cute, but not really kind of like that, (laughs) which is a perfect way to describe me back then. And so she did. She remembered. And that's how I got called in for Twin Peaks.
1: And um, I know that, of course, uh, David Lynch was the only one. Um, how was it mean, Mark Frost the first time? Did he see anything similar to you that David did? Or was it some different? Uh, was there a different dynamic with that?
0: I can tell you he didn't put the kibosh on me. Um, there's a lot of things like, uh, Return of the Living Dead, for instance, the line producer actually said, his words were, I'm violently opposed to Kimmy Robertson playing this part. Um, so I did... I I have elicited that kind of response in my life. Um, it's It's usually... It's always been, rather, from a male who doesn't like me because, I I don't know, they, they actually think I'm as dumb as I sound and as dumb as I look, and they aren't capable or interested in digging a little deeper and seeing. I mean, they're in charge, so they can do whatever they want. But like with that movie, I was put through so much, I finally said, okay, can you just give this part to someone else? I don't want it anymore because Dan O'Bannon brought me in. I had to be somewhere at like 2.34 p.m. on the ninth floor of this building where the sun came in, no makeup again, which you're going to be wearing makeup in a movie, but the audition no makeup and he had a you know a loop directors the thing they look through like a jeweler's loop that's what he had and he was putting it right here on my face saying smile no smile bigger smile bigger I eventually was doing this And, and I said are you trying to make me make wrinkles is that what you're trying to do because uh nobody's ever going to ask me to do that in any movie dan and he said well i just want to see uh, they thought i was too old to play that part or the part of the girl in return of the living dead uh and i wasn't i looked you know i looked 16 when i was 30 years old When I was 30 years old, if I went into a Mexican restaurant and wanted to have a margarita with my dinner, I used to bring my license, my passport, and my high school yearbook, because no one would believe just my license. They wouldn't serve me. And then even then, very often they wouldn't serve me. (laughs) And so I've had this, this is the other side of the coin, of all the magic stuff that's happened to me. And um, again, I forgot your question, Mark Frost. Yeah, no, he did not hate me. So I was very grateful for that. Uh, when I walked in and saw two of them there, I thought to myself, well, at least I get to meet them. I, you know, I, I'm i assuming that this that's why I'm here at this audition is I get to be the one of all my friends that meets David Lynch and Mark Frost. And that's where it's going to end because there's no way in the world both of them are gonna like me. And how could I possibly get a TV pilot with David Lynch directing? That was such a surprise.
1: And I, I know the, the the line producer of uh, Return of the Living Dead was more than a little unpleasant, to say the least. But I feel like uh, your your presence in the pilot just uh, proved how wrong he was, because I forget if it was the Writers Guild or the Directors Guild. But I do remember hearing that when there was this screening for the pilot that they loved your scene uh, describing the flow, the, the phone and in uh, and. and incredible articulate detail that when you showed up again it was like a massive cheer throughout the throughout the room and this would be something that would be later on viewed by 35 million people and be a show that like changed tv so i think that's proof of more than proof enough that like you know how one impression you left on david lynch mark frost and the tv show at large
0: that was really something i was there at the screening it was at the director's guild and i I was floored and everyone was elbowing me because everybody was cheering. There was not one empty seat in that whole theater. And I was absolutely stunned, just stunned. I just assumed I was gonna be ugly and awful. And then I wasn't. They had made me look okay and sound okay. And it made me seem funny, so.
1: And of course, uh, I can't bring up uh, Lucy without bringing up Andy. Uh, more specifically, uh, I would love to hear about uh, the first time when you met Harry Goaz in terms of, uh, you know, working with him, the friendship that you've maintained for decades, because when people see you both at events, uh, whether it's like at theater events or cons, it's very clear that there's a very strong friendship that you have.
0: Yes. Um, I met him on the set. That's where I first met him. Um when we were doing the pilot and it was late afternoon or early evening and he said something about the long underwear because it was so cold they put long underwear in our dressing rooms to put on under our costumes and he said did they give you long underwear to put on and I said yes they did and he said did you put yours on? I said, no, I didn't. (laughs) He said, me either. I was just wondering if I should have. I said, well, are you cold? And he said, no.
1: (laughs) But I guess the one other question I have uh, for Twin Peaks is that just because there are so many different writers and directors uh, throughout like the pilot and then the subsequent 29 episodes. Did you ever have any conversations with any of the writers or directors about the characterization of Lucy? It seemed off to you, because I know that for certain people, when there's that many writers, it can change. I know that the trajectory of season two definitely changes for a bit of time. So I wasn't sure if there was ever a conversation you had, whether it was like David Lynch, Mark Frost, Harley Payton, Uh, Tim Hunter, or any of the names that were attached for those roles?
0: Um, You know, I didn't feel comfortable with the way Lucy was going in the second season, but I also didn't feel like it was my right to, I didn't know I could talk to a writer and say, this is, can we think about this a little bit? I didn't know you could do that, and um, so I didn't. And I just came to work and did my scenes and uh, waited for David Lynch to come back and fix it. <laughs> yeah.
1: I will say, though, is that uh, between you, Harry Goez, and Ian Buchanan, I know that the pregnancy arc was kind of removed from a lot of the other, uh, other stories. But I will say is that no matter how many times we watch it, like the way you all play that dynamic, you all really hold that together in terms of like how fun you all make it, so... Even for me, when I thought there was a shift in character and tone, I thought all three of you really knew how to make that work, like with what you had.
0: Wow. Thank you. That makes me feel better about it. Uh, Yeah, it was, we were trying to make our own little world, the Lucy, Andy and Dick world. And, um, that's what we called it. And we hung out and stuff. We became friends and did everything together. And, um, They would come over, and we'd just walk around the neighborhood and laugh and laugh and laugh. They're so funny, the two of them. And Ian is so smart. Oh, my goodness. And you just never know if he's joking or telling the truth sometimes. Um, So that was the good part that came out of that. And there was a, a producer that also didn't really like me and yeah, he wouldn't let me go beyond David Letterman when I first, when the pilot aired, uh, that I was asked to go on David Letterman by Mr. Letterman and I ended up being called in to work, um, like I was all ready to go. Whatever day it was I was leaving, let's say it was a Tuesday, I was supposed to leave. And on Monday night, I get a call that I have to work on Tuesday. And everybody knew I was going. Everybody. It was a big deal. So I went to work. I canceled Letterman. They sent Dana Ashbrook instead. And I went to work, and um, the, the sheriff's station set was dark. There was nobody there but me. They were shooting something, I think, at the diner. I didn't work that day. He just didn't want me to go represent Twin Peaks because he thought I was dumb, I'm pretty sure. He thought I was as dumb as I sound and as I look. That's horrible.
1: I know that you were mentioned before about how you're kind of just waiting for David Lynch to return. So what was it like when you found out he was going to return for the season two finale and that you would actually be one of, if not the first scenes in like such an iconic episode?
0: I think I might have (laughs) cried. It was such, such a relief. And, you know, he had to do what he was doing. You don't get those opportunities every 10 seconds. When you have a hit TV show as a director and a writer, you get opportunities that are right then not later so he had to do uh wild at heart right then um and we all were behind him but oh we missed him so much and the show was just going in such wrong directions and people that would come that would like turn the camera upside down and like weird they thought it was weird so they'd be weird i mean just because they thought it was weird. I mean, it's another case of just not understanding. I think it would have been better to just not take the job and come and turn the camera upside down because it's Twin Peaksy. You know, there was a lot of that back then. A lot of that. I even saw, you know, commercials and things where it was Twin Peaksy, but it was weird. It wasn't art. Well, that was kind of sad.
1: When you were filming, I know that uh, with the way that was written before Dale Cooper goes to Black Lodge, is that they threw in a lot of cliffhangers, you know, including but not limited to Leo Johnson holding on to his dear life, uh, Ben his head split open, of course, Bob taking over Cooper at the very end. Uh, when you watched it and uh, also filming it. Did you kind of feel like that they would be able to renew it on those grounds? Or did you have a feeling that the rain was on the wall and that the show would be canceled?
0: I never let myself think that it would be canceled. I never let that thought into my head. I just wondered what in the world they were doing and when is David coming back? And I, a lot of us would talk to like Catherine Coulson, the law lady And say, can you please call him and tell him what's going on? So she did. And um, I remember watching an episode somewhere deep in the second season. And I had no idea who anyone was. I remember there, oh, there's James. I know him. Nobody else. I didn't know even where they were, it was so bizarre. Um, it was sad, it was heart, heart-wrenching, it was. But um, yeah. <laughs>
1: I did learn last year that the turnaround from the season two finale, or specifically when the show was uh, explicitly canceled, and then the advent of Fire Walk Me was a very short duration where it went from the show was canceled and then let's make season three into a novelization, then let's make it into a movie. Uh, How did you feel when you got the call to be in, uh, at least to shoot for Fire Walk with me? And did you have any apprehensions about being a prequel over a sequel? Or did you have any particular thoughts when Lynch approached you for it?
0: Um, I was happy to be asked to be in it. That I know. And at the time, I remember we were not canceled. When we were shooting on the set in the sheriff's department, I said to David Lynch, do you think we'll ever come back here again after this? And he said, "Now, Lucy, don't talk like that. We have to think and speak positively. And um, of course, we'll be back. Of course, we'll be back." And I said, "Okay, good, because we're not finished yet." And he said, "No, we're not finished. Twin Peaks is not done." And um, of course, I, I didn't know until I went to see I didn't quite understand that it was a prequel I didn't quite get that I mean I knew it was I heard the words I know what that means I understand all that but still somewhere in my head I was like maybe they mean a sort of alternate universe maybe it was like I could not grasp what Fire Walk With Me was and until much later and then when I saw it in the theaters in 92 I was in San Francisco doing a play and I went with my friend Brian Peck and my friend Daniel Bosler and we sat there didn't make a peep and afterwards we left and we went to get a drink we hadn't said a word and I said They cut Harry and I out. And Brian and Daniel both said, yeah. And that was all we said. We never said another word because when I went to the screening of the missing pieces, everything made sense. That's when I got it. That's when it all came together in my mind. I really wish David Lynch could have done it all together, like he wanted to, had Firewalk with Me and the Missing Pieces be one movie. So that's not gonna answer that.
1: I do remember that when Scott Ryan wrote Your Lord Disappeared, he did actually talk about how, with David Lynch, I think it was an interview with Mary Sweeney. Um, I could be wrong, but there's someone that talked about how heartbroken David uh, David Lynch was upon realizing that he had to cut the movie out. And by proxy scenes with like you or Norma, Big Ed, Harry Truman, uh, that he was like, he was actually crestfallen by it, where it seems like he would have loved to. But I know that during his uh, filmography, he was like mandated with the two hour and roughly 15-ish minutes in most cases. And it seemed like it was applicable for this movie as well.
0: Yeah, I know. He was very, very, very upset. Very upset. And back to the canceling of Twin Peaks, you know, we had an event in Century City that uh, was for ABC, and um, that's the station it was on. And the whole town of Twin Peaks was built. They had built the whole town in the middle of this giant street. The mouth of the Twin Peaks were there, along with other mountains sheriff station everything was there the double R um and the music was playing and there was fog like so it was like a fog machine making I, a lot of fog machines it was otherworldly amazing and it, I don't remember if it was an affiliates thing or what but it was one of those network deals that you they do like to advertise the shows that they like the most and they had gone so far away and above for this thing and again Bob Iger comes runs comes running up to me picks me up swings me around says this show is gonna run forever we love Twin Peaks everybody loves Twin Peaks we were canceled the next week And this is actually
1: one that Mark Frost brought up, is that he talked about when talking to uh, studio heads at ABC, it seemed like Bob Iger was in support of the show, but the people around him and like uh, maybe a a cup below him were not. Did you have any particular interactions with people during this time or even before?
0: You know, I saw Bob Iger a lot during that piece of time, during the second season i mean david lynch had me go to one of their meetings as lucy with coffee and donuts and um i did a bunch of stuff like that um and it was always i guess i'm assuming bob Iger requested it i don't know but i mean we were on friendly terms sort of like i was on friendly terms with david lynch You know, not calling him up on the phone, but very friendly. And he loved the show. He absolutely loved it. It was like, this is the direction he wants the world to go in. He wants things to be more artistic. He wants to be able to enjoy his job. He wants the consciousness of the human population to be raised. He wants art in as mainstream so i absolutely cannot believe that he had anything to do with canceling the show i mean that would be very bizarre if he was that good of an actor which you know why would he do that he wouldn't
1: and uh, you were mentioning the uh, at least uh, the for the night when you went to go see fire walk with me that you were in theater at the time, and I didn't actually realize that once again until doing research for this recording that you actually were in theater uh, for uh, for quite a bit in the early '90s. Was there any different challenges from acting or ballet that were unexpected once you made the jump into theater?
0: You mean doing plays? Yes. Well, I had been on stage since I was four, so I have to say being in plays is not my favorite thing because actors don't do as a dancer they tell you where to put each eyelash and that's what you do as an actor it's sort of like a free for all so um i find that a lot of times when you're on stage in a theater doing a play or something the other actors do something different but not in a good way. It's sort of like upstaging way even if they've been told not to do something because it will directly diminish the button that like my character is going to do and they still they can't quite stop themselves from stealing the spotlight. I don't like that. I mean I don't like that. It seems very immature, very childish, very selfish, very not ensemble-ish. And I just don't like it. You know. So that's why I don't do plays.
1: No, That's that's totally understandable. But it did seem like uh, after Twin Peaks uh, and after uh, what would later be The Missing Pieces, you did find a lot of work, you know, like uh, very prolific shows such as Batman, the animated series, The Tick, uh, Two Stupid Dogs. In the realm of uh, live action, ER, Tales from the Crypt, and Psych. Uh, were there any highlights uh, or certain memories you had from any of these shows or even shows I didn't mention?
0: Yeah, I did. uh did something I think was, I don't quite get the, the name is House of Mouse. And I'm not sure if that meant. That was the series name, and then there was a bunch of little shows that they would do. But the one that I did, I was, a, I think, I had a woman who owned a B and B or something like that. And Ray Walston, who was my favorite Martian, he was the Martian. I grew up watching that show. I got to act with him. That was pretty. That was pretty incredible to me. I mean, it was a kids' show, but that was something. And then of course, just what I always wanted to do since I was little was be on cartoons. And the fact that I got three phone calls the morning after the Twin Peaks pilot aired, one was a publicist, the second one was the David Letterman show, and the third one was Hanna-Barbera asking me to come and audition the next day. And I, I eventually got that part and then I got a lot of other parts, like Secret Squirrel. I grew up watching Secret Squirrel, and that just going to work at Hanna Barbera like every week was unbelievable. I'm working with John Jonathan Winters, and good lord, I mean, come on! It was, it was. That's what I liked the most was working with the old timey people that that I had been watching and admiring for years. And and on Twin Peaks, the guests like Royal Dano, I couldn't believe I got to work with Royal Dano and the guy, the Mod Squad people. It was more like everyone up in heaven was sitting around playing cards and they said, oh, that Kimmy girl we need to do something for her. What can we do? And somebody answered, Oh, let's make all her wishes come true. <laughs> all her dreams come true. Okay. And they did <laughs> that's what it that's what my acting career has been like. It really has.
1: And I, I know that the bar is very high because uh, you got to work with David Lynch. But uh, were there any other people, you know, outside of Rod Dano or Peggy Lipton? Because you mentioned the Mod Squad. Was there anyone distinct that you remember just being so starstruck by that it was unexpected?
0: Well, yeah, but I didn't work with him. I, I got he did come to the set to to uh, watch us uh, shoot. Uh, Sheriff station scene and to meet me he had made a deal with his publicists that they wanted him to come to the United States to LA to do something and he said no and finally they said well what can we do to what what incentive can we make happen and he decided this is what I heard he decided to make a something that he knew they would never do <laughs> it was that he could come to the set of twin peaks while they're shooting at sheriff's station scene where lucy was in it and he wanted to meet lucy and they said okay done so then he had to do it and it was ginger baker from cream so that was pretty amazing to for that to happen and I didn't work with him, but he was on the set. I saw him down the hall standing there grinning. <laughs> that was something that he even knew that I existed, you know, as Lucy. But And
1: this is actually still on the top of Twin Peaks, but it's fast forward to 2014. So we did talk about how you felt uh, finally seeing Lucy and Andy and Harry Truman on the big screen uh, for The Missing Pieces. But uh what was it like a few months after that? because I think it was only a few months when David Lynch and Mark Frost they both went on uh, Twitter to say that that gum you like is coming back in style. Uh, what was your what thoughts were run through your head like the earliest rumors of um, of Twin Peaks coming back, and what was it like for when they get when they gave you the call?
0: It was well, to answer the first part of the question, not that they gave me the call part of the question. It was horrifying. It was horrifying because I assumed that it wasn't that the way TV works is they're going to remake Twin Peaks or pick up where we left off, but they were going to have an all new cast and like Britney Spears was going to play Lucy or something. And that I, if I had watched them do that, you know, put an all new young cast and which is how they do things obviously i had to watch them i mean like mission impossible they killed jim phelps they made that killed him they made him a horrible character a traitor i mean that's how hollywood works and so when i thought they were gonna make it i literally was having panic attacks like in the car I'd have to pull over and call Jen Lynch and and she said don't worry if dad ever does Twin Peaks again he will not do it with anyone but his cast the people that he loves there can't be anyone else playing those people for dad it just would not happen so That's one side of that question. The other side is when I got the call, I have told the story before I was taking a nap because my mom was living with me then and um, she was having a nap. So I was upstairs taking a nap and the phone rang and I was on the bed. And by the end of the phone call, I was under the bed looking up at the box springs. I don't know how. I got down there. I had slipped off the bed and somehow wiggled my way under (laughs) because it was just so it was such a big deal. Colin, never in my wildest dreams did I ever think we would get to finish because we didn't get to finish and for 30 years. It was like we didn't get to finish and then we did. It was a huge big deal to me. To It was a huge big deal. Very, very big because Twin Peaks is a real place and all of our characters are real people and they were just left hanging. That was a big deal.
1: And uh, while we all know that Lynch was able to make his uh, vision, uh, his eighteen-hour movie, if you will, uncompromised, I know that there was that bump in the road for a while where he actually left because things were not going well for Showtime. And you were talking about before about uh, how his daughter Jennifer Lynch, how she said like, as long as dad is in control, he'll you know he'll bring back the Cassie Loves. Were there any fears that reemerged or even more so when the announcement came out in April, 2015, that he would not be in it for that point?
0: Yes. Well, it was Easter Sunday and he called me and I, mean, not just me, but when I got his call, uh, he said they're having issues with the lawyers. Uh, uh, I'll just make it really short that they won't give him the money he needs to make Twin Peaks um, and he can't do it for the money that they're offering him it it wouldn't be fair to Twin Peaks so somebody else is going to have to do it I literally my knees buckled and I I again found myself on the ground um, and I said well I'm not if you're not doing it I'm not doing it I said I bet you I bet you, you won't be able to find one cast member who would do it with somebody else at the helm. And he was was really touched by that. And obviously that didn't want to influence anybody's decisions, but thanked said, thank you. And that's when I called Machen and I said, can we do videos of everybody saying, No Twin Peaks, no David Lynch, no Twin Peaks. And then she took that ball and ran with it. And then it was in the end, from what I understand, the higher ups at Showtime did not know that this was going on. But that the lawyers that were talking, to negotiating with David Lynch were like underlings. They weren't the main money people. So that got fixed, thankfully.
1: And uh, I know that uh, for, I believe, the Washington scenes, they were filmed later that year in 2015. I, I I could be wrong, but they might have been among the first to be filmed. What was it like for, for waiting a year and a half or so from filming your scenes and then what you would see uh, in 2017? Was there just this constant feeling in your mind of like, were you just actively thinking about what Lucy would be doing, you know, come 2017 or was it something you kind of were able to forget about until its arrival?
0: Oh, I didn't forget about it. I just, I kept going to the dermatologist to have my face ironed. Um, I kept going to the therapy pool and doing my exercises and I just kept getting ready. Um, That's what I did the whole time. I was in the zone of Lucy and being prepared for that entire time.
1: And uh, what was it like? Because um, I know for a lot of people, like we were able to watch it on TV, uh, May 21st of 2017. But not only did you get to watch it before, you got to watch the first two parts in theaters. Uh, Was there anything that what were your feelings being able to see it in that environment with everyone who you worked alongside with and then more?
0: Well, uh, that's funny because I had the same feeling as I did before we went into the screening of the pilot at the DGA. I was like, gosh, I I hope I don't suck. I hope it doesn't suck. I, I knew David Lynch wouldn't let it, it suck, but I just, and mainly, I was hoping I was still in it, to be perfectly frank. <laughs> and then... We watched them, and uh, oh, my God. I-, I was very thrilled. I was thrilled. Very happy.
1: And uh, what was it like being able to watch it week after week? Because, uh, you know, I-, I know there's certain actors and actresses where they film their scenes, and they had no idea how far they go along. Were you happy when you found that you made it all the way up until part 17? Or do you have any concerns that Lucy's uh, Lucy and Andy's arc would end before that?
0: I just assumed that they would end. I was that we were in it so much I was so happy and you know the whole thing with the gun and everything that was I just I think I'm the luckiest person on earth I do I really do I'm not kidding I mean the
1: next part I have is that uh you know with the return being out for over six years at this point whenever you think about it have your uh, thoughts in terms of how you view the 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 story has it changed over time or has your overall feelings of the return uh, remained the same
0: um it's changed a little i it seems like i understand it a little more as time goes on it's just sort of it's able to sort of sink in and then the feelings that it evokes seem to be a little more educated or enlightened and it, it's just like looking at a painting like an old master where you you don't really know what you're looking at and each time you look at it you get more it's like that only it's all happening in your unconscious mind and it's a television show that's what's so amazing
1: i, I remember i i watched the documentary lynch oz uh, actually uh, last time i saw you at the texas theater and John Waters was, in, and he was talking about how when he watched The turn, it's his favorite thing that David Lynch has ever done. And he's just blown away that that could be on cable television, you know, within 2017 and more the contemporary era of TV. So I think that's a real testament to, you know, what Lynch created and also how much he contributed. Because like you mentioned that you shoot uh, Mr. C, which is like a fan favorite part of part 17, I I, when you uh, when you say like you understand how phones now work, uh, that's that's a scene that like people still talk about this day. So yeah, you like uh, you brought like a great deal to the show.
0: Well, you know, speaking of John Waters, I I I think he's he's an amazing person. He's so he has such an understanding of of stuff. I, I'd like to listen to him explain stuff. I mean, not necessarily just Twin Peaks, but when I listen to him explain either like just topics of the day or a movie, I I'm always just blown away at how like why didn't I get that or why couldn't I put that into the words that he did? Even inside my own head, I I really like him. He really should be doing more, much more commentary uh, on television where people can see him and listen to him and learn from him, because I think he's kind of brilliant.
1: I absolutely agree. Uh, and on the topic of John Waters, I think of like uh, whenever he shows up in any documentary, he's always the best part by far. It's like you said, like the way that he articulates his thoughts and the way he brings insight, the way his mind works, It's uh, it's like a highlight. Like everyone else is like, far behind in terms of like you know when you see the uh i'm trying to think the gravitas of his presence and, and his wording
0: thank you for putting it into the words i didn't have But you're, yes thank you you said it
1: oh, thank you and yeah. um i i guess the uh, next part i have is um you know i was looking through stuff you've done since the return and the one that i was able to watch a little bit of is that you were uh the lead of Ollie and Scoop where is like I, I felt like that was actually a role that you were like very much perfect for, where it's like this little girl and her pet and uh you know, lessons learned. Um, you know, what was it like uh, you know, being able to work on a show, you know, this and other shows like that uh since you finished the return?
0: Well, he uh Nico who writes, directs, does everything for this for Ollie and Scoops, he's a Twin Peaks fan. And pretty much everything I've done since the return has been because some brilliant Twin Peaks fan has made something and I've run into them and they've asked me to do it. Or, I mean, it's so, it's pretty cool. It's very cool. I mean, and, and when he asked me to do it before I could I I opened my mouth to say, uh, what's it like rated? And he immediately said, it's like a G rated cartoon, like the kind we used to watch when we were kids. And I was like, yes. And he said, don't you want to read the script first? No, I'm going to do it just because of that. Because I think there's such a shortage of entertainment for kids that doesn't, turn them into a, some sort of violent monsters. That's just happy. Yeah. Well,
1: one of the things that I liked when I watched it was that it had that very mid-90s Hanna-Barbera feel, like that early Cartoon Network feel. It just felt like it was right at home, and that um, Nico, that this is the type of stuff he loved growing up as well.
0: It's a cartoon! Yay! <laughs> and of all kinds, a girl who can hear her cat talk. I mean everybody else is they all they hear is meow, 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 I just love it. I'm just Since
1: we are winding down, uh, do you have anything you want to tell people that you're working on or even uh, just like social media you wanna plug?
0: Um, no. I know that I'm working on some stuff, but one thing I can't really say, and it may or may not happen, but I'm real excited about it. And that's really all. That's all. I'm working on living and meditating better
1: but no kimmy i just want to thank you for coming on it was an honor for you to take the time to go through like all these different parts of your life with like ballet, working in the disney renaissance era all these facets of twin peaks uh, ollie and scoop was really honored to have you on
0: gosh thank you colin it was my honor truly i mean you're you you really have a great um show if i can call it a show please thank you so much kimmy Thank thank you Get yeah.